we're talking about spiritual practice and uh, uh, the, the varying instructions for uh, for practice and all these. And sometimes when people say, "What are you practicing?" They say, "What you do? I practice. I, I practice bringing my attention to my breath. I practice walking. I practice uh, being with my belly moving up and down. I practice repeating loving kindness phrases in my mind." But the thing is, what I, I think it's more—it's important and informative for me to talk about. I am practicing regaining a balance, regaining equanimity in my mind, so that I will really be able to continually see what's true about, really, what's fundamentally true about what what's happening, what the nature of life experience is, what the nature of suffering is how I create suffering and end suffering according to the patterns of my mind, what the habits of my mind are, and how to live in such a way as to, in this inevitably difficult and um, challenging life, not to be creating extra suffering. That's what I'm practicing. That's where I'm going. Like if somebody said, uh, where are you going? Or what, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to go to Vancouver. And they say, okay, what's your technique? I say, well, my technique is a getting in the car. And if I don't have a map, my, con my technique would be continually making sure that the sun is rising on the east and setting in the west. So even without a map, if, uh, if the, in the morning the sun was coming up on the east and going down on the, on the left, on the, my right side and going down on my left side, and I were riding north, sooner or later I'll come to a sign that'll say, Vancouver, or turn now for Vancouver. <laughs> but So the things that I said about my techniques, like I get in the car, I refuel it before the tank is empty, I keep watching the sun, those are all the things I do. But really, the practice is getting to Vancouver. I think it's tremendously important. We talked about uh, two weeks ago, uh, when we started the year, talking about <coughs> the Eightfold Path, which is the path of practice. And we were going to talk about, the, you know, in different permutations and combinations, all these first weeks of the year. It's true that uh, all the Buddhist lineages, uh, all the major lineages that I know of, uh, have different stories that they tell to teach what the Buddha taught. They have different historical backgrounds. They started in different places at different times. They have different forms, but everyone comes together around the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path <coughs> is the fourth of the Noble Truths, just to put it back into a context for someone who might not know. The Buddha's enlightening, un, un, enlightened understanding, <coughs> after his own very intense practice, was that there are certain things that are true. One is that life is inevitably challenging. Really, if, as, if, the, 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 if that were more than one sentence, it's usually it's life is challenging. The cause of suffering is imperative in the mind that it be different from what it is at any other time, at that time, at any given time. I have lots of wishes that the world would be different it, it, at this given time. There's so many difficulties in the world. There's such inequality of the use of the world's resources. There are so many things that could be addressed if we shared and took care of each other. Certainly the wars in the world and the conflicts and people killing each other, hurting each other, hurting their own bodies. There are a lot of things that I wish would change uh, so that wishing things were different from how they are is not problematic. Insisting that they need to be different from how they are now, otherwise my mind can't relax, is suffering. I can say to myself, my mind is distressed by that, so I'm going to support these causes and these politicians, and I'm going um, to send these letters, I'm going to do this kind of political action. But to do it out of a place of love and concern for the world, rather than out of a place of anguish, of my mind not being able to say, this is what's happening. It's like my friend Martha, who I spoke about a while ago. The difference between saying, why me, and why not me? I'm a person. This happens to people. So to say, this is a world. This is what it did to itself. Okay. 
Now would be a time that the whole world might stop and look around and say, wait a minute, look what we did. Look what we're doing to our, each other. And not only that, look what we're doing to each other, look what we're doing to the world. We'll read all these terrible climate catastrophes that are happening these days. What did, what's going on? What's going on? And it's, you know, whatever. But and, and to say, I'm concerned about this, I wish it were other, what can I do, is not suffering. That, I think, is the natural response of the compassionate heart, to want to make things better. Suffering is saying, I'm so mad at everybody who did it wrong. It should be different. Why is this happening? It's happening. It's good to know why, maybe, but even not to assign blame. It's if it wasn't for this person, it wasn't for that person. If it wasn't for everything, <coughs> we wouldn't be where we are. We're here we are. We're here we are because of everything. What can we do now? So by the way, that's, just, that's the second noble truth. The first is life is inevitably challenging. You think, well, it's not, how could it be? How about if you have enough resources? How about if you have enough resources and you live in a safe place? And we sit here and it's, it, it really looks like the, the Garden of Eden, you know, it's calm and by and by some deer will walk by the window and if not the turkeys and it's quiet. And we've all had enough to eat probably today, or we will today. We're not worried about it. But each of us has a mind full of my child who is sick, or my parent who is sick, or my neighbor who is sick, or uh, <coughs> my job that I've lost, or my hopes that I don't have, and uh, my diagnosis that I've just gotten. And how will I do this? We're doing that from the beginning to the end of our lives. How will I do that? How will I negotiate this? Um, and to be able to say what I'd like, a third noble truth, is peace is possible. There's another way to say the second noble truth about imperative would be to say we complicate the difficulties in our life by the way that we struggle with them. To be able to address them is different than struggling with them. This shouldn't be happening. I'm furious that this is happening. It's happening. What should I do now? Third noble truth is that peace is possible. We could actually train the mind, teach it how to meet moments with equanimity that maintain the wisdom these things happen so that we do our lives in the way that doesn't cause extra suffering for ourselves or anyone else. And the fourth noble truth is the path towards that. And the path towards that, if you have not walked up ever to the gate that goes up to the upper campus here and seen the prayer wheel, you'll see the path is on the prayer wheel. The path has eight parts. Wise understanding, this is what life is like, the, eightfold, the four noble truths. Wise aspiration, I am going to change my mind so that it meets the moment uh, more um, steadily, that it meets the moment as a friend, that my mind meets experience without making an uproar about it. We can get excited. That's not an uproar. It, um, I always, uh, I hope I don't always tell all the same stories. <laughs> uh, but, you know, lest it sometimes sound. <laughs> I was telling a friend yesterday that Buddhism, to, to study Buddhism now has become quite commonplace. So that if you say to a person, I practice Buddhist meditation or I, I've become a Buddhist, it's, it's like a normal thing now. And uh, isn't it a more a normal thing? Around here. <laughs> Around here. Uh, 30 year, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, I went back east, which always follows California in terms of doing things, or is later then. Things happen here first. The sun rises there first, but things happen here first. And I went to some family event, a big wedding or something, and somebody in introduced me to someone else that I didn't know from the other side and said, uh, this is my cousin Sylvia from California. She's a Buddhist teacher in the middle of a big wedding, everybody carrying on. And this is my cousin Sylvia. She's a Buddhist teacher. And that person said, oh, hello. <laughs> 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 and, like, and, like, 
it's, 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 like Buddhist teachers don't talk or laugh or have a life or, or dance or sing. But um, so the story that I I I, I tell sometimes is that uh, uh, I can tell you exactly how long ago twenty four years ago uh, on a some night in November when uh, just uh, before Thanksgiving, I can even know that, and not on a night in November, just before Thanksgiving, I was preparing to go to teach a retreat at Santa Sabina Center in San Rafael for 10 days, and uh, my youngest daughter came by my house and said, uh, would you and Dad like to uh, take uh, Johan and myself out to dinner tonight? Her husband and her, and I said, "Well, we'd love to, but I, I actually can't do that because I'm going to work." She says, "You sure you wouldn't like to take us to dinner?" I said, "No, no, no. I would like to take you to dinner. <laughs> I just can't take you to dinner because we're on our way. I have to go and I have to teach." I said, "Really? Can't you go to dinner?" I said, "No, I can't go to dinner." She said, "Can't go out. Uh, you really don't want to celebrate the fact that you're going to be a grandmother." So I got quite hysterical, you know? I got quite hysterical. The first time you get hysterical. So I was quite hysterical, jumping up and down, so excited. And the phone rang. It was right next to me, and without thinking, I picked it up, and it was my friend Alta. And she said, hello. I said, Alta, I can't talk. I'm hysterical. And I put it down. And I, and I continued to be hysterical a little bit, you know, jumping around and uh, hollering and carrying on. And then I calmed down. And I went to teach the class, because I'm supposed to teach the class. So I didn't go to dinner and teach the class. But I tell that story always because I want to say that to whatever degree one has enough steadiness of mind to know what you have to do, in the middle, you get exuberant. You have five minutes of exuberant carrying on. And you put it together, and you go to work. Uh, that, that equanimity does not mean blah. It doesn't mean indifference, it doesn't mean tranquility, it doesn't mean calm. It means that you maintain a certain steadiness about what should I do next and a certain ability. The other, you, know, you all have examples in your mind, I'm sure, of someone who calls and tells you tragic news, someone has been killed in an automobile accident. Or, and you can't believe it, you're profoundly But you hang up the phone and you call the airline and you make reservations and you go. You, you, you know, there's something that holds you together, carrying the grief with you. It's not that you get over the grief. You carry it with you and you go to the airport and you fly to where you're going and you do it. It's like a big, huge container for the mind that helps it stay more or less on course. So maybe that's the paradigmatic individual, those are paradigmatic individual events of how we can have a wide range of emotional responses and still be on a course. We know where we're going. The second of the Eightfold Path is uh, deciding where you're going. The first of the Eightfold, the first is wise understanding. You understand that this is, this is true, that Four Noble Truths seems to me works in my life. There are a lot of there are some metaphysical concepts that I like to hear, but I might not actually have any resonance personally with. Um, I tend not to say what I believe this. I tend to say what works for me is what works for me is the four noble truths makes a lot of sense to me. I see that in my life. The eightfold path makes a lot of sense to me. I see that in my life. So it's not a question of belief or faith or blind faith or whatever kind of faith. I have faith in the human being's ability to deal with a tremendous amount of pain because we all do sooner or later. But I don't have that faith because somebody told me. I have it through my own experience, which we all do. So I would say about my path that my path is to continue to develop the ability to stay fairly steady through the rest of my life so that I'll minimize the suffering that I have and that the people around me have. That's my path. 
And I think that the second of the Eightfold Path, after the wise understanding, this is how life is, is this is how I'm going to organize. I really want to develop that kind of steady mind and uh, available, compassionate heart. That's what I'd say is the path. And that it, it, and when we think about uh, a decision to do something, we say, okay, I'm going to get to do that well, then we have a practice path that comes from I say, okay, I want to learn to play the piano really well. And you have a practice plan, and you do it. I want to do this very well, you do it. In the realm of spiritual change, we think of that as pilgrimage. I'm now on a, on a journey. A spiritual journey is a pilgrimage. So it's different from the journey to speak French or play the piano. And it's just the special name that we give. They both require a lot of practice. But we give a special name, pilgrimage. I'm going to a holy place. And mostly when we think about a pilgrimage, we think about going to a holy place, like going to Mecca once in your lifetime. Maybe seeing the Vatican. Maybe... Um, Santiago. Hmm? Santiago. Santiago. Santiago, doing, walking that trail. Did you do it? <laughs> I know. I did part of it in a car. It counts. <laughs> um, could be, I, you know, seriously, for me, it counted because, uh, particularly because I thought at, you, you get a little passport if, if you, where, where you begin that, that, that trail that goes from south Middle South France through the Pyrenees to the east coast of Spain. Uh, you get a passport, and then when you get to each of these monasteries along the way, abbeys, they stamp it like in another country. So you get the stamps in your passport that you were there. So getting a stamp in my passport, I thought about how many pilgrims with what devotional heart had been through there with the, the same kind of intention that I had, the same sense of pilgrimage. So the, the story of the Buddha, you probably all know that he left his home, having had the realization life is so difficult, and human beings inevitably suffer. How does one accomplish a serene mind, a peaceful heart in the middle of it? Remember that the four sights that the Buddha saw was of an old person, a sick person, a dead person, and a monk. And the first three sights were, uh, according to the story, uh, amazing to him because he had been protected from what we would call the existential awareness. Uh-oh, in life this happens to everyone. That was the end of the sentence that I started several paragraphs ago about life is difficult. And um, even if you have all of the comforts physically of life, old age, sickness, death, being losing everything that's dear to you, either before your own death, which we lose a lot of people, or the death of ourselves as we deteriorate and die. Everybody has to do that. And so the Buddha said, not I'm figuring out a way not to do that, but I'm figuring out a way for the mind to be all right with all of the challenges of life, all of the disappointments, the inevitable, and the surprising. And he went off on his own trip and did very serious meditation studies for six years, the end of which he sat, presumably sat down in a certain place and uh, after a night of meditation said that I now understand. And in the next many, many decades, uh, five decades, articulated his understanding all over, walking all over, the part of India that he was in and teaching it to a lot of people. I was thinking about who in our time we think of as um, doing pilgrimage. Um, I think of, um, I thought of two people that I wanted to mention. One of them is the Burmese um, woman, Aung San Suu Kyi, who was last week on the cover of Time magazine, who has spent uh, 16 of the last 21 years uh, as a captive in a, in a detention place or in house arrest in her own place. And uh, 
but remains staunchly the symbol of democracy to the Burmese. Um, he talks about uh, cultivating a peaceful heart. He staunchly continues to work on behalf of peace, but she wants to do it with a heart that's not angry and a mind that's not furious. She says, um, where is it? She, they call her the lady because her, um, her response is um, measured. I can't find the exact place, but she said, uh, what, now that she's out from house arrest, she says, I would really like to meet with the government and talk with them about my ideas about governing. I'd like to sat, sit down and have tea with them. And somebody said to her, well, what if they won't have tea? She said, well, maybe they'll have coffee. You know, but not to, you know, so um, while under house arrest, sequestered from normal human contact, uh, noble ideas and fine words kept her company. She read books, biographies, all the way from biographies to spy thrillers. People think uh, I had nothing to do while I was in detention, but I spent five or six hours listening to the radio every day. If you, uh, you're under house arrest and you miss one item, there's no one to tell you about it. So I listened very carefully. It says, her taste in classical music speaks of her sense of discipline and composure. Mozart, she says, makes her happy, which is all well and good, but she prefers Bach. He makes me calm. I need calm in my life. Still, for all her years of imprisonment and whatever travails may come, she considers herself lucky. It's not because of the people's adoration of her, but because of their respect, a value she believes stems from a generosity of spirit. In my life, I've been showered with kindness, she says. More than love, I value kindness. Love comes and goes, but kindness remains. The other person I thought about in our lifetime um, is uh, Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton, as a young man, uh, 20, at the age of 27, entered the uh, Gethsemane Monastery in uh, Kentucky, became a Trappist monk. Over a period of years, he converted to Catholicism, uh, and then he decided he wanted a life uh, as a Trappist, a contemplative monk, because his journey was not to go somewhere geographically, but to go to that inner place of feeling... Um, at home with himself, really. Another person might call it at home with God. Maybe it's the same thing. In this, uh, in, in this collection of his, uh, uh, from all of, many of his books, he's uh, talking about how he changed over the years. He said, I've, I have had to accept the fact that my life is almost totally paradoxical. I've also learned, I had to learn gradually to get along without apologizing for that fact, even to myself. And perhaps this preface is an indication that I've not yet completely learned. I have been, but however, I've become convinced that the very contradictions in my life are in some ways signs of God's mercy to me, if only because someone so complicated and so prone to confusion and self-defeat could hardly survive so long without special mercy. Consequently, I think I can accept the situation with simplicity. Paradoxically, I have found peace because I've always been dissatisfied. My moments of depression and despair turn out to be renewals, new beginnings. If I were once to settle down and be satisfied with the surface of my life, with its divisions and its cliches, that would be time to call in the undertaker. <laughs> Except that in the monastery, we do without undertakers. So then, this dissatisfaction, which sometimes used to worry me, and as certainly I know worried others, has helped me to move freely and even gaily in the stream of life. My unspoken or spoken protests have kept me from clinging to what's already done with. When a thought is done with, let go of it. When something has been written, publish it and go on and do something else. You may say the same thing again someday on a deeper level. No need to have a compulsion to be utterly and perfectly original in every word. All that matters is that the old be recovered on a new plane and be itself a new reality. This too will get away with you, so let it get away. Mm 
In other words, I have tried to learn in my writing a monastic lesson I could not possibly have learned otherwise, to let go of the idea of myself, to take myself with more than one grain of salt. In the monastic life, if the monastic life is a life of hardship and sacrifice, I would say that for me, most of the hardship has come in connection with writing. It's possible to doubt whether I have become a monk, a doubt I have to live with, but it's not possible to doubt that I'm a writer, that I've born one, I'll probably die of one. Disconcerting, de-edifying as it is, this seems to be my lot and my vocation. Talk about just that one last paragraph about accepting life. You give some of it to others if you can. You should be able to share things with others without bothering too much about how they like it either or how they accept it. Assume they will accept it if they need it, and if they don't need it, why should they accept it? That's their business. Let me accept what's mine and give them all their share and go my way. Life tends to be like that. Yeah. So here he is. He's in Gethsemane for 27 years. He goes at 27. He stays at 27 years. He leaves to go participate in a conference of monastics east and west in Asia. He meets, um, he meets and visits with uh, a number of uh, Tibetan Buddhist teachers, mostly. And they have wonderful conversations about what's your interior life like and what's your interior life like. And it's clear that there's an inter such a thing as an interior life and that we give different names to it depending on the lineage in which we have been developing it. But we can say, what's it like for you when you experience the presence of Christ? What's it like for you, uh, the experience of emptiness or interconnectedness? And they talk back and forth. So his pilgrimage, rather than going someplace physical, was he went to a place where he couldn't go anyplace from. There's a, there's a part in the seven-story mountain where his friends, uh, his former friends from Colombia, his friends, but now, now are out in the world and he's in Gethsemane, he's a cloistered monk, are all um, uh, working for civil rights and uh, registering voters in the South and um, marches and he goes to his abbot and says, I feel very badly all my friends are out there making a difference and I'm sitting here in the monastery and I feel badly that I'm not out there really on the front lines where they are. And the abbot said, um, no, you just stay right here. You have no idea how many people you hold up with your prayers. Mm -hmm. And that's just been a very <coughs> dear thing for me to think about. Uh, that everybody has their way to come to peace in them. And so everybody's pilgrimage is to find their way. For some people, it's a contemplative life. For other people, it's an activist life. It's not, not they don't, in, in our case, because none of us are cloistered monastics, we have the possibility of doing lots of lives. We can have the life of study, the life of prayer the life of contemplation, the life of activism. But it's the life that we've chosen because we think it's going to end up in the place that we want to be with a mind that's filled with um, steadiness. I've been thinking about this. I, 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 I said it to you a few weeks ago, too. I've been thinking about that um, Deepa Ma, one of the teachers of my teachers and a, a person I didn't study with but met and had some contacts with and was very impressed by, said about herself, who was known to be a person of extraordinary deep compassion and kindness, said about herself, someone said, what's in your mind? And she said, there's not much there. It's only um, <laughs> concentration and loving kindness and peace. And I thought to myself, ah, that's exactly what I'd like, and with especially the emphasis on the only. That's what I'd like to only have there, not any kind of misgivings or remorse or regret or hostility or envy. I'd like my mind to be so filled with loving kindness and steadiness and peace, concentration and peace, 
that nothing else could get its elbow in there somehow. So I wanted to talk about this particularly today because now I'm going to give this place to Ruth, um, Ruth Dudson, who is going to tell you about her pilgrimage to Tibet recently <laughs> and her views of pilgrimage. Here, Ruth, can you? I can sit over here. Are you, are you happier over there? I'm happier over here. All right. <laughs> No, 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 no. I was, I was thinking we would, I would get off the pillow, actually. <laughs> would you like this chair? Yes, thank you. <laughs> and then you, and then you can have this. Um, I'm plugged in now. <laughs> in fact, I'm planged in twice because I put on this one as well. So I'll take this off. So we went to Tibet. We had actually been in China for about seven days before we flew to Lhasa. And we flew to Lhasa and landed there in the afternoon. And Lhasa, as you know, or may not know, is at 11,500 feet. Lhasa, part of China, part of Tibet. Tibet is actually a third of the size of the uh, United States. If you imagine, if you think about it, it's like all the, all the areas are in the Pacific time zone. So it's a huge country. <coughs> Most people think Tibet's really quite small, but it's not. It's really quite large. So we came to Lhasa, and Lhasa is... <laughs> is down in the southwestern corner of Tibet. Can you all hear me? Lhasa itself is 100 miles from Lhasa Airport. So we had to drive along the corridor of the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful rivers in Tibet called the Yaling River. And as we drove into Lhasa, this is the first thing that we saw. It's absolutely astonishing to come on this. When you've seen so many pictures of it, you think, oh, yes, I know all about the Patala Palace. But it is really astonishing to come across it. Patala, in fact, the first part of the Patala Palace is the White Palace, which was built in the 15th century. And the Red Palace came about 14 years after the White Palace was built. That's the first thing that we ever saw. The second thing that struck us, and this was about pilgrimage, was we woke up on the first morning, and having got my breath, we decided that we were going to go out and go and visit the Jokang. Now, the Jokang is the first palace that was ever built in Tibet. It actually dates from the 7th century. It is the center of pilgrimage for everyone that comes to Lhasa, those that have prostrated themselves from the far north of Tibet all the way to Lhasa, taking sometimes a year and a half to get there. Those that have come in a bus for 10 days 
with the bus breaking down every half an hour, but they still made it. All these people go first to the Zhou Kang Palace. It happened to be within walking distance of where my husband and I were staying. And we went over there first thing in the morning to be totally surprised by the huge number of people that were taking their pilgrimage on the Kora round the Zhou Kang Palace. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Tibetan pilgrims walking constantly all the way around this Kora. And the only way to get across to the Jokang was actually to join the Kora and gradually work your way across to the front of the building. And there at the front of the building, there were again hundreds and hundreds of pilgrims prostrating themselves in front of the Jokang Palace. And for those that couldn't actually walk, they did in fact improvise themselves some sort of bicycle that they bicycled around the Kora with. In front of the Kora was a massive stupa, which people were stuffing full of juniper branches. It was so smoky <laughs> that we were coughing as we started around the Kora. And I took this picture, and it shows how the people were walking even through this smoke in order to go carry on doing their pilgrimage. Lhasa is a beautiful place. It's very big. We actually spent five days there. We visited the Jokang Palace, as you, uh, uh, the Patala Palace, as you see here. That was on our third day. We were a bit apprehensive because, as you can see, it's quite high. In fact, from the front to the top, it's 900 feet. And, we, and I got to the stage of my husband would laugh at me. I'd, he'd say, what are you doing? I said, I'm counting steps. And he said, what for? I said, everyone's merit. <laughs> <laughs> because it was so difficult. We had to stop like every 20 paces just to get our breath. So we went there. We also visited this 7th century nunnery, which was built, in fact, on top of one of the first caves that they found in Lhasa. The nuns in this particular place are actually making prayer wheels. And they're making the prayers to go in the center of the prayer wheels. This is their pilgrimage. This is what they're doing on a daily basis. Now we think about prayer wheels, and you'll see them in the shop there. Little prayer wheels. Oh, no. These are prayer wheels on long sticks. So big. And the prayer wheel is this big and they have to actually have a belt around their waist and have to hold it on the belt because the weight of this thing is so huge. And they turn it and turn it and turn it as they're walking on their pilgrimage around the Jokang Palace. Many colorful people from all over Tibet were there. This is a group. We think it's probably a family <laughs> talking to each other. The lady is wearing all her wealth. She's wearing her coral and her turquoise around her hair. The pilgrim, the man comes from Kham, and we can tell that, I can tell that, because of the red band that grows across his head. His hair is very long, and he's plaited it, and he's put a red tassel, and he wraps it around his head, signifying that he is from Kham. We've visited the four major monasteries in this part of Tibet. There are two of them in Lhasa, Dripang and Sara. Sara was the first one that we visited. And if you think about monastery, when I first started studying Buddhism, I thought monastery was church. No, monastery think, monastery think woodacre. It's that kind of size. It's a small village with a central meeting hall, but it's also a place of education for the monks. Although many monks in past times have gone at age seven, their education really starts at age 18. And it can take between 12 and 20 years for a monk to actually become a geishi, to actually qualify. And in each of these monasteries, there are colleges. Of the four that we saw, Three of them had three of the major colleges, and they study religion, philosophy, texts, and the major texts. And in one college, they also study Tibetan medicine. Their day normally starts around 5 o'clock, 
and they have prayers and prostrations and teachings. And then about midday they break. And then they start debating. This is in Sarah, and these are the monks who are actually standing outside, and what they're debating is what they've been taught that morning. The monk who is sitting says, I think the pilgrimage path is straight. And the monk who is standing goes, no, prove it to me. I think the path is straight because I see the stones. No, prove it to me. And it goes on like that. It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And here's one of the monks gesturing his no. Explain it to me again. Explain it to me again. And they spend two hours in the afternoon debating like that in order to make sure that their knowledge is really complete. From Lhasa, we went to Gyantse. Gyantse is 300 miles from Lhasa. Doesn't sound very far. Except it's over this huge mountain. And I had read in the guidebook that we were going to go over a 17,000 foot pass. And uh, we were a bit apprehensive <laughs> about that. <laughs> but we drove up through the mountain pass and came at 16,000 feet, and we could still breathe. And it was snowing, but down below we could see the most beautiful lake. It's called Nyamdrokso, and it is the heart of, the, of Tibet. They say that the soul of Tibet resides in this lake. And it was so calm up there. It was like Tibet was holding its breath. China is a huge, hugely busy place, as well as all the people that you see bustling in the streets and all the prostrations and all the forward movement. There doesn't seem much time and place for pausing for a breath. But up there, looking at Yandrok So, it was like pausing for a breath. And as we came down the mountain on the other side, I took this picture through the window of the car. I don't know if you can quite see, but you can come and see afterwards. There is a mountain in the center of this picture. It's really quite low. And it looks, looked to me as if the mountain was breathing. It has this aura over it. I've actually blown this up, this picture up. I have it in my house in England. It looks as if the mountain is breathing, and that's how it felt up there. It felt as if this was where people were able to take a breath. <coughs> the next place we went to was Tashilampo, which is in Shigatse. And this monastery is the home of the Pachin Lama. One of the most famous things in the monastery is an 80-foot statue of the Matriya. It's made out of 300 kilograms of gold and 150 kilograms of copper. It opens at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We got there. It's a long walk from the front. And we sat down on a concrete bench facing the door, waiting for it to open. And gradually, monks and pilgrims came from everywhere, gathering. And I made a space, because I could see there were some elderly ladies, probably younger than me, <laughs> coming up. And I thought, well, I'll make a space so they can sit down. And one of them sat down beside me. <coughs> and um, she looked at me, and we smiled. And then I said, where are you from? And she said, uh, we came from Calm. Oh, that's very interesting. And who's with you? And she gestures to her friends. And how long did it take to get here? Oh, two days. And I said, so, and she looked at me, and she suddenly was so surprised because I was speaking Tibetan to her, and she hadn't actually realized what she was saying. And then the conversation turned really friendly, and we were talking about, all the girls that were gathering in front to go up and down in there. All the girls these two, had plaited their hair, their long black hair, into 108 plaits. As you know, 108 is very significant because that's the number of beads there are in Amala. And they had plaited it into 108 plaits, which went all the way down their back, 
to their butts. And at the bottom, they had put the plaits into a very large piece of silver. And I kid you not, no, it's not, I'm just demonstrating. It's that, that big, this piece of silver into which their plaits went and studied on it were pieces of turquoise and coral. And they were walking around like that. This is a group of people that were sitting outside. We were waiting for the statue to open up. <coughs> and when the doors open up, there's a huge surge of all the pilgrims. And well, Mike and I, my husband and I, stood back because we knew that once you got inside this monastery and in to see the Maitreya, it would be a series of steps that you had to go up and down. Now, as I said, a lot of these pilgrims were elderly, and they had come from their fields where they'd just done their harvest. Uh, some of them were young, like this girl I have shown you, who's right way up, but some of them were really quite elderly. They were carrying butter to feed the butter lamps, and they were actually, many of them, the younger ones were carrying their children, and it took them a very long time to go up and down the steps to all these, to see all these different places in the monastery. So you had to be very careful. This was their pilgrimage. We, we felt that we had to respect that this was what they had tried to do and had done such a lot in order to get there. The last monastery we went to was called Samyi. This meant we had to go from Shigetsi back over the mountain, back through the pass, and then 200 miles down the Yarling River towards the east of Tibet. Samyi Monastery is the first monastery that was ever built in Tibet. It was actually built in the 7th century. It sits in the plain opposite to the Yarling River. Now, you, no, you're not going to be able to see this. You're going to have to come and see this picture. This is the Yarling River, and this, these are 19,000-foot peaks surrounding it. We had to cross the Yarling River in a small wooden boat. So we get onto the boat, there's my husband and I, and 50 pilgrims get on. <laughs> and we look at each other, and we're sitting quite close to the boat driver at the back. And he looks at everybody on the boat, <coughs> and he solemnly pulls out his lifesavers. He's got six. <laughs> and he hands me one. <laughs> and he hands them out to the rest of the boat, and we all set off. And we all set off across this river, and I notice all these beautifully dressed women. These, as I said, are from Amdo. Amdo is a 10-day bus ride from Samyi. And they're talking to each other. They're so excited. They're little kids that are holding on to their grandpas. They're monks, there are um, elderly people, and we're all crunched up in this boat, and the monk sitting opposite me taps me on the knee and goes, where are you from? <laughs> so I say, America? Where? San Francisco, and he goes. <laughs> He's speaking to me in English. <laughs> and he and this group of people had spent, as I said, the last 10 days traveling to get to Semyi. And I said, where are you going to sleep tonight? Because I know that although it's, as I said, it's like Woodacre, it's a small village, there are not many places to stay. And at this time of year, there are a lot of pilgrims. This is Semyi Monastery. And he said, for the next two days, we will sleep on the floor of the monastery. Samyi Monastery, as I told you, was totally destroyed. It was rebuilt, in fact, in 1990. So it actually is a beautiful place today. It's built in the form of a mandala. So this is the centerpiece of the mandala. I don't know if many of you have seen sand mandalas, which are made when the Dalai Lama comes to visit. But this is the way this is particular thing is constructed. Because it sits in this vast plain, it is actually a small little dot here in the foreground. I'll pass it to Sylvie, and she can perhaps have a look. Up the side of the mountain, you can see there is a ribbon of prayer flags that go up. It's like the prayer flags have been assembled and they have gone up the side of Mount Tamalpe. And they renew them every year. But it's such a dot in the landscape, you can't imagine how far it is to get to the next place. 
we were actually, we, our um, driver said he'd come and collect us. It took him three hours to go around the desert to come and collect us. He actually collected us so we didn't have to go on the boat across the other side. But we drove through the desert then for another three hours. And we came across this beautiful pass with the prayer flags going across it, people walking down there. It is so remote. It is, it is absolutely beautiful. We finally got to the end of our trip, and our guide said, we will go one last place. So we said, very good. And he took us 40 miles outside where we were staying. Uh, <laughs> 40 miles outside where we were staying. And we went to what was one of the most holy places in Tibet. It was where the first temple was ever built. Now, they say it was built in 123 AD. It was, of course, completely destroyed. It was rebuilt in 1990. We got to the village in front of it, and uh, the driver said, you can go on a horse, or you can go up those steps. <laughs> so we didn't have a choice. <laughs> we got on the horse. <laughs> but people climbed the steps up to the top of this monastery, and this is the view from the top of the monastery. Prayer wheels overlooking the fields underneath. And the fields underneath are, as I said, where the first Tibetans ever lived. And it's where the first kings of Tibet were buried. So that was our pilgrimage. Now, what were our conclusions? Well, we concluded that... Although our pilgrimage was tough, it was toughest really because of the altitude. We were prepared, but um, we, uh, in actual fact, I think I was telling one of my friends, both of my husband and I lost 10 pounds in 10 days. It's simply because you standing upright takes so much calorific effort. But our effort was nothing in comparison to the effort of the pilgrims from Calm and Ando, their determination, their persistence in this, with all the difficulties they had, not just with the terrain, but with also the rebuilding of their monasteries. The Chinese obviously realized that it's important to rebuild them because they have a tourist attraction. But the Tibetans really are the people rebuilding them by hand, brick by brick, floor by floor. And they've maintained that and they've maintained their religion despite the circumstances that they've had to overcome for the last 50 years. And I think that pilgrimage for, for them and our observation of it was in, huge. And the second thing is, uh, as I said, my husband and I have um, been pilgrims in the Tibetan world. I bought this book in 1980. And we've been pilgrims in the Tibetan world for a very long time, but nothing ever surprises me more than the vastness of the blue sky and the height of the mountains. And although we don't have passports that we can actually stamp, I do keep the entrance tickets <laughs> to all the monasteries. I speak Tibetan, yes. Where did you study that? I first learned Tibetan in India. Uh, I went to India in uh, 2004. Um, I was uh, very honored to go and do some work for His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, at uh, in Norbalinga Institute up in Dharamshala. And I started to learn Tibetan there because it mean, meant that I could actually communicate better with the Tibetan people that I met who had all escaped over the mountains. What kind of work were you doing here in Poland? Um, I was working, uh, doing photography. The uh, One of the major guest houses, which belongs to Norbalinga, which is called Chonar House, has paintings in every room which relate to every single part of, of Tibetan mythology. And it had never been documented. Um, so I documented by taking pictures of every room and then working with another volunteer who came from Sao Paulo in, in South America, 
we got the history of every single room and every single painting and how it had been painted and who had done it. And then we talked to every single master who was working in Norbalinga uh, who were doing the tanka paintings and the paintings. <coughs> that, that's what I did. I was there for 40 days and 40 nights. <laughs> is that a public thing anywhere, that collection of photos? Yes, it is published. Uh, it's actually quite difficult to get now because uh, it was published in India and I never had any control over it. It's not, it's not online. No, no, no. <laughs> um, but, you know, you can always see my pictures on my website. Um, Who else wants to ask a question? We have two minutes. I didn't tell you one of the observations that we did have. In Lhasa, throughout the throng, which is moving around the Jokang, every hour there was what my husband fondly called the star troopers. Star troopers. Fully um, soldiers with helmets in full body armor carrying submachine guns in groups of seven that pushed their way through every part of the Kora and all the way around the Hutong districts around the center every hour. The last one was carrying a megaphone. In fact, we said to our, we looked at this and couldn't actually understand why this person had a megaphone. And that was because our guide said that the Tibetans are not allowed to assemble in any groups bigger than 10 people. And if they do, they get out the megaphone and they yell. Um, funny story? That first day, um, because we were tired, um, my husband and I went to sit um, in front of the Jokang, it was quite a large square with a small wall, and on the wall were all sorts of pot plants. And there was a space, maybe yay big, for us to sit down. We'd, I didn't have my camera with me, so, and I carry a big camera, so I wasn't you know, trying to take pictures of anything or anybody, and you sh you're not allowed to take pictures of the uh, Star Troopers. And we were just watching what was going on, lots of Tibetans moving up and down, and we were just talking about how colorful they were and, and how beautifully they moved and, and the little kids with their cell phones. Um, we could see two of the policemen in the far distance, and one young one came up towards us and, and we kind of looked at him, and then he kind of ran away. And then an elderly policeman came up and he said, you have to move. I said, why? You have to move. So I said, I'm too tired. And yeah. I put my head on my husband's shoulder, and he walked away. <laughs> and my husband said to me, mm, you took a bit of a risk. <laughs> but the Tibetans are No, they are rebuilding them. They are. We didn't see anything being ripped down. We, we saw rebuilding, a lot of rebuilding. Can you read the most Chinese or Tibetan? Tibetan. They mentioned yes. how you had uh, checkpoints all over the place. Yes, um, that's one of the things I said to Mark, that uh, every time we went on this long journey, every two hours there was a checkpoint. And our uh, Tibetan permit and our passports were taken to every checkpoint. And at every checkpoint, our guide had, had a list of where we were going, what our names were, the time that we arrived, and then he would, the guide, the checkpoint person would write down when we had to get to our next checkpoint. Oh. And we couldn't exceed that time. Oh. Lou. Yes, Lynn. Taking a breath, and in a few words, how, what experience was different this time for you? There's no mountain that you can't climb if you take enough breath. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.